0: Well, good morning, everybody. Now's the time of our service, where we usually have a seat. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, If you need a uh, sermon note, sermon outline, weekly devotional... I invite you to get that at either entrance to the, uh, the room. Um, so last night, uh, two things to mention before we get into it, but uh, I do in- invite you to turn with me to the book of First Samuel, chapter 18. At a Bible that uh, may be in the pew little uh, pocket in front of you, or uh, perhaps one that you brought on your own this morning. That's definitely something that I personally love to bring a Bible to church. I know a lot, of, a lot of folks would like to use the phone, but for me, nothing beats the a book in my hand. Anyway. Um, yeah, first Samuel 18, we're going to be starting there, but two things to mention before we get that uh, do that. first of all, um, we are incredibly blessed and in praising God this morning for um, uh, Andrew Broadwater and now Brent Hardesty, who has joined our worship team full. Uh, regularly moving forward, so I want to welcome them. Um, man, I just, uh, and Mary, thank you so much for, for those prayerful reflections. I mean, the idea is that um, this uh, series of David, the story of the life of David, the thing that we're focusing on is that David's story is a lot like our story, but... Um, In that David's story is actually a lot like Jesus' story. And Jesus calls us in to be with him. And there's all this kind of interconnectivity between David and Jesus and our story and New Hope's story and the people whom we love and the friends that we have. And man, it all kind of builds on each other. And then this morning, we're going to focus on this idea, like Mary said, of covenant friendships. And we're going to talk a little bit about what a covenant is. Friendship is as opposed to just an acquaintance or somebody that we work down the hall from. Um, The other thing I want to say quickly is uh, thanks to everybody who came out last night to the prayer service for police and first responders. Um, uh, I got to to be a part of that, and um, it was uh, great to meet some local law enforcement that came and brought their uh, police vehicles, um, and it's just a good way to reach out to the community. So thanks for everybody that was involved in that, specifically to Shannon Chastain, who organized all the touch of truck thing outside where they actually could get into, uh, the kids could actually get into like police vehicles and stuff. That was really neat. What's that? Yeah. Right. Just praise God over that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So this morning we are continuing in our series, Holy and Faithful Mercies, the life of David. So, so far, we've seen three episodes in David's life. First, we saw David's anointing. The prophet Judge Samuel was led by God to a family in Bethlehem to anoint a new king over Israel. If that sounds familiar, it should, but don't get ahead of yourself. Moving on. The thing was, Israel already had a king. Um, His name was Saul. Saul. And the thing we need to keep in mind is that King Saul um, didn't always listen to God when God told him what to do. It's a long story, but we need to know today, what we need to know today is that God didn't think that Israel needed a king in the first place, because God was supposed to be their king. But because the people insisted, God decided to allow it. The thing was, God desired a relationship with the one who would be king When God told the king to do something, he expected it to be done. Because after all, he was God and the king was not. No matter how much power and authority and majesty the king had, he still wasn't God. And King Saul didn't listen very well when God told him to do something. So God told Samuel to anoint another king, uh, who turned out to be a young shepherd boy from Bethlehem named David, whom God said was a man after his own heart. Now, again, if you're like me, you hear the word Bethlehem and you think of something else, right? Well, again, you're on the right track. But David didn't become king then. He had simply been anointed to become king at a later date. The second episode is David's playing of a liar. In the second episode of the Davidic story, we, uh, we saw him being called in to the king's court to play the lyre, which is like this ancient guitar, for King Saul, who had been tormented by an evil spirit. And at this point in the story, it's clear that Saul is beginning to be overcome by what we might call depression, um, but it probably, that probably doesn't go far enough. It's clear that something has gone terribly wrong with King Saul's relationship with God. The language that is used, it says that he was tormented by an evil spirit from God. What a mysterious phrase. What would it take for you to feel like you were suffering spiritual torment? Maybe if someone you loved was in danger. Maybe if you had an unresolved guilt. Maybe you have this feeling in the pit of your stomach that that something is horribly wrong and you're tormented. And when this happened, David would bring, or Saul would bring in David, who would play the lyre, and the torment would stop and he would be soothed. Then we get the third story, uh, the third episode that, that we all know so well. The Philistine army amassed their troops to attack Israel. King Saul assembled his army to prepare for battle. The Philistines decided on what is called single battle combat where they would bring out their mighty champion, Goliath, to fight the mightiest champion in Israel, and the two would battle it out. As it turns out, David isn't just good with a sheep and a liar. He's a, marked, a skilled marksman with a slingshot, and he takes Goliath down, and he becomes the hero in Israel. David is taken before King Saul, this victorious champion, and King Saul finally starts paying attention to this David guy. And this is where our story picks up for this morning. It's also where the story gets a bit more complicated. But the first verse in the next chapter is very important for us to remember as the story moves forward. 1 Samuel chapter 18 verse 1, when David had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was bound to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, Jonathan was the son of King Saul. He had been successful in battle himself, and he was heir to the throne of Israel. See, he wasn't just Jonathan. He was Prince Jonathan, the one who might one day be king. And the story takes off, and a ton of things happen within the next three chapters. But it's remarkable, as we get into the details of what happened there, the thing to remember, the thing to keep in mind, the thing that the narrator wants us to know is that David and Jonathan's friendship is of vital importance from here on out. It's said that their souls were bound together. Other translations say that their souls were knit together. We have a lot of knitters in our congregation. Some of you might be knitting right now, not knowing that you would play right into a sermon illustration. My wife Amy likes to knit a lot. And this is a blanket that Amy knit that contains tens of thousands of stitches. Stitches, is that the right word? Um, and this blanket is especially symbolic to me because it is a blanket that my wife made for my oldest friend in the world. Not, he's not old, he's only 36, but you, you know what I mean. Um, so... Each individual stitch, each individual knit makes this kind of square. And then she works on these squares and she gives patterns and she gives texture to the square itself. And then she takes each one of those squares and connects them to other squares. And then these two squares somehow connect to this larger square. And it becomes this really beautiful image of what friendship and connection and the interconnectivity of all of God's creation is all sewn up in that blanket. What's that? It's supposed to be the Orioles. (laughs) Looks like the Cleveland Browns. (laughs) The blanket is soaked in symbolism. It represents the talents of my wife, the relationship that I have with my life. Um, And by extension... Um, the relationship that, that my wife has with, with one of my best friends. Um, it represents just one tiny example of two things knit together that can build on each other and contribute to a com- larger community of relationships. It also represents the church. Uh, see, I have a relationship with God, and you have a relationship with God, um, but then it's all about how we have a horizontal relationship with each other that's connected to our vertical relationship with God. Oh, and the blanket speaks to the love that we all have for the Orioles. Uh, may they have, uh, end the season on a high note. You see, the, the relationship that David had with Jonathan was not just a friendship. It was a covenant friendship that carried with it a sacred quality of two souls being bound or knit together. Saul brought David with him back to the king's house permanently, and Jonathan's reaction could have very easily have been jealousy. Jealousy at this guy who can kill giants with a single blow? jealousy at this guy who can ease his father's tormented soul better than he can, jealousy at the hero of the day, but instead, Jonathan does something we don't expect. He doesn't just befriend David in the way that you're friendly with the person who sits next to you at math or in a nearby cubicle. Verse 3 says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped off his robe that he was wearing. He gave it to David. He took off his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What's going on here? What's Jonathan doing? He's laying down his authority as a crown prince and his superiority as a battlefield warrior. See, we're not told at this point exactly how much David knows about, or how much Jonathan knows about David's history. But clearly God is at work in the friendship between David and Jonathan. It would appear that Jonathan has figured it out. That this man is destined to be king. Destined by God to be king. And he wants to make sure he's on David's, not to mention God's, side. But do not mistake that for what is going on here as strategy of allegiance. Jonathan and David's friendship is not based on convenience. It is based on authentic love. It is based on this idea of covenant friendship. When we use the term covenant here, it it doesn't just mean like an agreement. An agreement between two parties. It, it means something sacred. Something set apart. It's bonding that is something that means that um, more than the sum of their parts. When we speak of God's covenant faithfulness, we, we think about the faithfulness that God has to His people that He called out, blessed to be a blessing. It's God's covenant faithfulness that we see from Genesis to Revelation. Sometimes we talk about the covenant of marriage. We've talked about our partnership here at St. Hilda's as a covenant partnership with the Episcopal Church. A covenant friendship is one that has experienced a sacred bond. And in our story, it'll stand the test of a ridiculous series of events, um, series of actions by Jonathan's father over the next three chapters. David becomes one of Saul's most trusted warriors, and Saul started to send him all over the army. Wherever Saul sent him, David was successful. As you can imagine, this made him quite the celebrity. Picking up in chapter 18 and verse 6, As they were coming home, when David returned from killing the Philistine, the women came out of all the towns of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with other musical instruments. And the women sang to one another, and they made merry. I don't make merry enough. I need to do that more. Anyway. Saul has killed his thousands, the women said, and Saul's pride swelled old. Oh. The women here, they're leaning out their windows and saying, Saul has killed his thousands, the king has come home. And then other women on the other side say, and David's killed tens of thousands. Uh Uh-oh. Saul was very angry, for this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed David to tens of thousands, and to me, ascribed thousands. Um, What more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed. David. From that day on, what does that mean? When he he eyed, he had like Jonathan Jones. I got my eye on you. You know, you know that kind of thing. He eyed him. He wasn't quite his enemy yet. We'll get to that later. But he he had his eye on him. You know, the fragility of the ego is a consequence to anyone who attempts leadership in this world. And Saul, who was already a tormented soul, was just kind of sent over the edge by this episode. From here on out, Saul sees David as a threat, not a friend. But Jonathan stands by David, even as Saul tries at least six times, probably more than that, to kill him, um, or at least put him in some sort of mortal danger. And so we're going to walk through quickly all of the little episodes, it's kind of like a sitcom, like David, the sitcom, in and this, uh, uh, little, little tiny episodes throughout. But remember, as we go through each and every one of these little tiny episodes, um, think about in the, in the back of your mind uh, David's relationship with Jonathan, David's relationship with other people, David's covenant friendship with other human beings. First of all, Saul tries to kill him with a spear. We're told that the next day after they come riding into town, Saul has one of his evil spirit headaches, And David starts playing the liar in order to soothe his king. This time, though, um, the playing of the liar was like nails on a chalkboard. He says, here's this kid who thinks he could just come in here and be the big hero, and now he has the audacity to think that he can make me feel better with one of his fancy talents. Where does he get those wonderful toys? Anybody get that Batman reference? A couple people did. Very good. Saul sees David, that sounded really great in my office, like, oh, I'm going to make a Batman reference. Anyway, Saul sees David playing his liar on the other side of the room and throws a spear at him to try to pin him to the wall. And of course, Jonathan was there. And then we're told that Saul tried to do this again. And you know, and twice David eluded him because he's David. But again, there's Jonathan. Oh, look at that. And then Saul um, he makes David a commander of a thousand troops and and this might seem like a, a promotion from court musician um, but but this would have put David at serious risk. David is though he's successful he's successful wherever Saul sends him wherever Saul sends him because after all God was with David. And this only helped to increase his stature in the eyes of the people. Here is this victorious general leading leading around a victorious army and parading them around the countryside um, at the order of the king. Saul's plan kind of backfired. And we can imagine how much this infuriated the king. Who, Who would have been by the king's side? The whole time is Saul's being mad and he's fuming and I can't believe this guy David is going all over the countryside and he keeps winning battles and he keeps you know, he guy can't trip over a tree stump without it working out to his glory. The whole time Saul's complaining about this. Who's by his side? His son Jonathan. Then Saul changes tactics. He offers his eldest daughter, Mirab, to David as a wife. Now in exchange. Saul tells David that the only thing he wants David to do is just be valiant in battle. Saul figures, I'm not going to raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. Saul figures if he just keeps sending David out into these outrageous battles, eventually someone else will come along to do the dirty work for him. But David responds with humility. Who am I and who are my kinsfolk? my father's family in Israel, we're just a shepherd, lowly shepherd family. Who are we that I should be son-in-law to the king? And that amount of humility on somebody who has a tormented soul must have just made Saul even more angry because he ends up giving Merab to another man just before the wedding. And the whole time, who was there watching as his father used his eldest sister as a pawn to take down his closest friend, Jonathan. Now Saul ups the ante when he notices that his other daughter, Michal, has fallen in love with David. Saul's actions are getting darker from here. He figures that if David is going to be married to the king's daughter, that'll be like, Put in a big bullseye on David while he's in battle. And then Saul does something that was as weird and perverse then as it is now. He tells his servants to tell David, doesn't, doesn't do it himself, he tells his servants to tell David um, the king desires no marriage present um, except 100 Philistine foreskins. This odd request was obviously meant to make certain that David had to do something um, so demented and so ridiculous on the battlefield that it was increase the likelihood of his danger just exponentially. But God was on David's side. <laughs> And David rose and went along with his bend and killed a hundred Philistines. Uh, some translations even say two hundred. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king. <laughs> it's disgusting. You have this image of David with like... <laughs> Hi, king. <laughs> Glad I can marry your daughter now. <laughs> you know, here you go. Absolutely Disgusting. Saul must have been dumbfounded at the sight of David walking around the throne room with a sack full of foreskins. But he did allow David to marry Macau. But now the text tells us that Saul didn't, have a, he didn't just have a suspicious eye on David. From that point on, he saw David as his enemy. And the whole time, watching as his father... Used his other sister as a pawn to take down his closest friend by asking him to do something completely ridiculous is Jonathan. So then Jonathan gets involved. He enters back into the story. Saul tells his son that he's planning to kill David. And telling David, and he tells David to go into hiding. Jonathan tells David to go into hiding. Jonathan takes his loyalty to David uh, right to his father. And he says, you've got nothing against David. He's done no wrong to you. In fact, he's only ever served you well. He took his life in his hands when he, went up to Goli- when he went up against Goliath, and God miraculously brought him and Israel out of the woods. You were there. You saw it. How do you think it's going to go down for you when you kill an innocent man who evidently clearly has God on his side? Well, Saul comes to his senses, at least for the moment, and David comes back into the king's presence. But now there should be no doubt in the king's mind where Jonathan's loyalty lay. And then, as something that, like, an echo of something that happened earlier, things kind of appear to cool down for a while. David is back in the king's household until there was a Philistine attack. And then he went off to battle like before. And God was still with him. And of course, just like before, he's, an inc- he's incredibly successful. And then just like before, Saul becomes overtaken by an evil spirit from the Lord. And David, just like before, is called in to play the liar again. Again, this doesn't soothe Saul like it's supposed to. And he tries once again to throw a spear at David while he's playing the lyre. David has finally had enough. And he tries to escape. So where does he go? Saul, once again, tried to get somebody else to do his dirty work because um, David decides he's going to go see Samuel, the, the prophet and the judge. He says, I'm going to go to my mentor. I'm going to go to my Dumbledore. I'm going to go to the guy who I think can solve this problem. Um, and he goes, but Saul uh, sends his messengers over to David's house, uh, over to where David is, over, um, oh, I'm sorry, no, I've skipped ahead. Backtrack a little bit. The Samuel thing doesn't happen until the next episode. I'm sorry. Saul ki- tries to send messengers to kill David in his sleep. I'm sorry, I missed one. I get so wrapped up in all the crazy things that King Saul has done. I missed one. He sends his messengers over to David's house overnight so that they can kill him in the morning. David's wife, Michal, figures out what's going on and he tells David to flee. She says, hey, hey, these guys are waiting out there to kill you in the morning. Um, you should escape through the window. So David escapes, and McCall puts a statue um, in David's bed and, and, and puts goat hair on it to kind of make it seem more real. So morning comes, and the king's servants knock on the door to kill David. Apparently, says McCall, David's too sick to come out of bed and be murdered. You'll have to come back another time, boys. So the men come back uh, to the king and says, oh, sorry, my lord. Uh, David's sick as a dog. Uh, Maybe we'll kill him next week. Saul says, what do you mean he's sick? Bring him here. Bring him in his bed if you have to. I'm going to kill him myself. Well, Saul finds out that this daughter tricked him, and McCall lies to her father in order to keep David safe. And where did David go after he fled the window was to his mentor, his Dumbledore, Samuel. David escapes and travels to go see the prophet judge Samuel and tells him everything that has happened. Saul gets wind of this and sends men after David. Now Samuel lived like in this prophet monastery. Um, So when Saul sends men to go get David, they uh, approach the camp um, and they see all these prophets, what says, in a frenzy. We're not exactly sure what that means. Probably something like a, they're overcome with like spiritual worship or something like that. Um, and the men fall in a frenzy too. And then Saul sends a second group. And the men fall into a frenzy. And then Saul sends yet another group and they also fall into a frenzy. And finally Saul says, well, I'm going um, to take care of this myself. And, and he not only falls into a frenzy himself when he gets there, he takes off all his clothes and he lies there all day and all night naked. Walter Brueggemann says, the pitifully embarrassing scene is that of this once great man Still tall, it said that Saul was head and shoulders, head and shoulders above the rest. Still tall, but no longer great. Exhausted by demanding religious exercise, clearly not in control, shamed and now rendered powerless in a posture of submissiveness. This episode is an act of dramatic delegitimation of Saul. So now it's not just Jonathan that's helped David it's also been his wife McCall, and his mentor samuel whatever david was on all accounts david was a pretty incredible person he was still though just a man who owed everything to god saul's ego left him alone um, left him alone and naked on the ground but david as talented as he was still needed his friends still needed his friends to help him because Uh, become the man that God wanted him to be. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, friendship is a much underestimated aspect of spirituality. It's every bit as significant as prayer and fasting. Like the sacramental use of water and bread and wine, friendship takes what is common in the human experience and turns it into something holy. So, who is it for you who is the person that comes to mind when i says the say the words covenant friendship not just the superficial stuff if if you were in real trouble real trouble who you were, who would you call if you were about to do something really stupid and you needed to talk and you needed somebody to talk some sense into you who would you trust to give you honesty when you needed it the most Who would you go to if your marriage was falling apart? Or if you were just one bad mistake from losing your job? One book I read this week said, it asked, if you were out of town and needed someone to get your son out of jail, who would be your phone call? For those of you who have thought of someone right away, good for you. It's certainly a blessing to be able to name your closest friends as quickly as you can name your phone number. But know this. Friendship is not just a blessing, it is a skill. Friendships must be cared for like a gardener tends a garden. It, it needs cultivation, deliberate action of promotion and attention to the details of the relationship. In short, you need to be all up in each other's business. You may have answered those questions with the names of family members, and obviously there's nothing wrong with that, but it's the exception that proves the rule. Even though they are your family, maybe it's your spouse, I hope it's your spouse, maybe it's your brother or your sister, maybe it's a parent, Um, no matter who it is, some work needed to be done in order to get the relationship to the point where you could be that honest and that vulnerable. See, the problem is many of us struggle with being honest and vulnerable. Uh, This isn't just an easy thing, and it's, it's definitely not an easy thing to start. You know, if you don't already have it, it's not like, um, oh, Hiya, yeah, Frank, uh, I wanted to let you know that I've really appreciated our time working down the hallway from one another. I was wondering if we couldn't get one of them covenant friendships going. Now, here's, here's the more likely scenario. When I asked those questions a minute ago, Someone probably did come to mind, but maybe that person isn't 100% sure that they know, maybe you're not 100% sure that that person knows how much you trust them. My challenge for you would be to simply tell them. King Saul suffered from an incredibly bruised ego, and David was clearly God's choice to be the next king of Israel. But I have to wonder if things would have turned out at least a little better for Saul if he had the sort of relationship with another human being like David had with Jonathan. Instead, he settled for a superficial yes man. He was like the, the CEO who started a company so that he would always have friends. Let us always look to have the sort of friends who can be honest enough to call us back to true north. Well, David has the guts to go to Jonathan and say, What have I ever done to your father to make me hate, to make him hate me the way he does? He even says, if I've done anything wrong to deserve death, don't bother taking me to your father. I want you to kill me yourself. I trust you enough, Jonathan, that if, that if I really have wronged the Israel, if I really have wronged my God, if I really have wronged my king in such a horrible way, please, I want you to kill me because I trust you that much. How's that for vulnerability? They construct this elaborate scheme to try to trick Saul into confessing that he plans to kill David while the king was alone with his son, but it actually really wasn't all that necessary. Saul wastes no time in cursing Jonathan, making it quite clear that he has every intention on killing David the first chance he has, and he even then attempts to murder his own son. It's said the true friends stand in harm's way for one another. And our passage today ends with Jonathan running out of the field, into a field where David is waiting for him. They embrace his brothers. They weep together. We're even told a special little detail there at the end of chapter 20 that David wept all the more and declared to one another that this covenant friendship isn't just going to be between the two of them. It's going to be between their descendants forever. There is a distinction to be made between individualism that celebrates the worth of each individual human being and an isolationism that separates those individual human beings from others. Repeatedly in the Gospels, we see Jesus leaving the crowds in order to have time with an individual or maybe just a small group of people. He knew that, there, that the time spent with the one or the few would benefit the many. See, Christianity is a faith that, that names worth in others. This is a vital aspect of the gospel and one that each of us are called into. We're called to look others in the eye and tell them that they matter in this world. That they are created with a purpose and a promise. They are human beings. Created the image of God. A God who loves them so much. He sent His Son Jesus to die for them. But may the celeb- that celebration of the individual never cease. to, uh, Never cause to isolate. Never be caused to isolate. Building off of Paul's language. Jared Mann says the church's nature is like the human anatomy. Each member has its unique contribution to make to the body's function that, that is each member of the individual worth and importance. But an individual member acting separately not only deprives the body, but it also destroys itself. Listen to this. The individual's uniqueness can be realized only as he acts in concert with the other parts. Let me say that again. The individual's uniqueness, the thing that makes you, you, can only be realized truly when it acts in concert with other parts. The uniqueness of David's character was strengthened by his relationship with Jonathan, Michal, and Samuel. These were individuals who affirmed who he was, and it was this interconnectivity of covenant friendships which God used to move the story along. May we look to invest in others. May we look to cultivate relationships and know that the connections we have with other human beings are a blessing through which we will see God Himself at work. Let me pray for us. Father, You have laid out this incredible narrative, this incredible story from creation to new creation. And in that, you have given us each individual worth, individual stories, a life that is filled with purpose and promise. You've called us to be something more. You've called us into a life of abundance, a life that is filled with grace, that is filled with um, your blessings. And we accept that. We hear that. All not because of who we are, because we're something great, but because of who you are working through us. That's where we get our worth. And what can we do? What can we do when we have received that kind of grace? When we've received that kind of radical, revolutionary, reconciling reconciling love? What can we do but reflect that love and grace back into the world? Through love, through charity, through working for the, the poor and the oppressed, but also through these covenant friendships. That you have called us to have these horizontal relationships which are defined by vertical relationship. I love it, Father. I love it, Lord Jesus. When you tell us the most precious commandment is to love God with all of your heart and the other thing is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is an intimate connection with how we love God and how we love others and that's the glory that you've called us in. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.